0: Hello friends and welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and on today's episode 8, we will be talking about rags to riches, a preferential option for the poor. Liberation theology, that's a topic that I was not introduced to until later in ministry, later in life, and it's something that is extremely contextual in nature. It's hard to pinpoint. There are some pretty core tenets, for instance, this desire to return to the you know, early practices of the church in the first century with this focus on this decentralization of political and cultural and religious power. It's this understanding that God, the divine, has a preferential option for the poor. It's this belief that orthopraxis, which is right action, leads to orthodoxy, which is right thought, rather than the other way around. It's this belief that truth is reached through community, and that faith is inherently communal so i will be having this conversation communally with my friends vlad amanda kyle and andy a uh, week we are going to disagree we're not on the same page there's going to be tension in the room and it's going to be a beautiful episode with my friends here in the brew theology headquarters that's right speaking of the headquarters of brew theology we have a little bit of a headquarters every other week here in Denver at our remix gathering where we revisit the topic at a local brewery, and it's always at Platt Park Brewing Company. If you're ever in Denver, or if you just wanna hang out with me and you wanna come, well, hey, we're gonna go to Platt Park Brewing Company because it's a couple blocks away. Tonight I'm drinking the Oktoberfest, which is crisp. It's got that malty, uh, beautiful color to it as well. Uh, you know, there's something about an Oktoberfest during October I don't know maybe it's the name maybe it's just the fact that it's a delicious beer so if you're here in Denver check out Platt Park Brewing Company on South Pearl they've got amazing beers such as the Watermelon Berliner Weiss that tastes like a Jolly Rancher they've got the Kaladi Coffee Porter which tastes like a coffee porter Uh, they even have a beer two years ago that won silver at uh, the Great American Beer Festival that is their Gump's Lager So amazing ownership, fun place, very kid family friendly as well, so the kids can come. Platt Park Brewing Company, love you guys. So speaking of beer, uh, we're, uh, before we get into today's show, gonna introduce to you all on the interwebs about partnership, what it means to partner with Brew Theology with different levels of beer partnerships. So our website is brewtheology.org, and since I'm recording this about a week and a half out, I'm not sure if if the website's up and running, but regardless, uh, these are the different different levels and you can look at these online to see if they're up there right now. The first partnership, if you wanna start a brew theology, is the Pilsner level. Now the Pilsner, it always quenches the thirst. It's easy to drink, everybody knows this, and this is the easy way to become an affiliated brew theology partner, wherever you live, in your town or suburb, or through your church. So uh, what you get in this is you get a lot of really cool things. First off is that you will actually get two, that's right, two one hour consults uh, with myself um, and or Janelle. Uh, you'll also get um, you will get some love online, you'll get some social media shout outs and we will recognize where you guys are so in your city we're gonna have a locator on our website that shows where to find you all in your specific town or city. Uh, we'll endorse you, we'll retweet you, we'll reshare things and uh, also you get the logo. This Brute Theology logo is not free, but if you want it, it is yours. And only um, only $100 a year, that's a steal. $100 a year gets you all that, plus you also get three months of curriculum. So that's pretty sweet, $100 a year, three months of curriculum, everything I said above, fantastic deal. The next partnered level is the Belgian Wit. This is a breaking through the wall kind of a beer and most of us remember our first blue moon. Some people still like Blue Moon. I call this the beer that got me into becoming a beer snob. <laughs> so uh, the Belgian wit, there's a lot of good Belgian wits out there. This is a great partnership level level that bumps you up to really brewing uh, your theology and taking this community of yours you know to the next level, taking it a little bit more seriously. So what you do is you get all these delicious components that come with um, the Pilsner. But you'll also enjoy this wheat deliciousness, right? Wheat, that's a new word. Weed deliciousness. These ingredients of getting three, three, that's right, one hour consults in addition to six months of free curriculum. And this is only at $250 a year. Also, pretty big steal right there. The next level is the Porcher level. You know, this is known as the transport brew. And so, uh, what this will do is this will transport your brew theology community uh, to the next level with this kind of partnership. So, what you do is you get all the perks of the pilsner, all the perks of the of the wit listed above, but due to your ability, right, to move past summer and move into the fall, because that's what porters are known for, you're also going to get, check this out, year-round curriculum for free, year-round curriculum. Uh, You're also going to get five, count that, one, two, three, four, five, five one-hour consults with follow-up with Janelle and myself. We ask that you partner with us with $500 a year to keep this Brew Theology organization brewing along fantastically. Also, I think that's a pretty good steal right there. Now, these next two levels um, are are, uh, beautiful. IPA, the IPA is actually my favorite beer. This is a drink that is hopalicious and it hits you in the nose. It's it's what we call in Colorado, the danky beer. So you know you've got a drink in your hands when you're drinking the IPA. So this sponsorship, like the IPA, it really sticks with you. So you get all the perks to the, the Pilsner and the Wit and the Porter, but in addition, you will receive ongoing consulting from Ryan, myself, and Janelle, my ministry partner, throughout the entire year. Plus, you will get free swag. Everybody loves free swag. I'm wearing swag right now. Hashtag Brew Theology. This piney level Dankalicious IPA partnership is a sponsorship partnership of only $1,000 a year. And in the course of the year, that's a pretty sweet deal. Next partnership is the Whiskey Barrel Stout. Now, this is... This is only for the ones who want to sit and sip all night. This is a sipper of a drink if you've ever had a whiskey barrel stout. Now, this partnership right here, uh, you get all the perks, all the perks of the Pilsner and the Whip, porter, the IPA, but you also get the organization's name, your organization, your city, town, burb, whatever that is, or it could be a church, and you get that on the website, on the homepage. We're still going to Retweet, reshare, all that kind of good stuff. Um, you will also um, you also get to join the podcast, the Brew Theology podcast. You can come on. Uh, we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. It's going to be all kinds of fun. And uh, we simply ask that you bring uh, myself and you bring Janelle out to do a little talk at uh, at your community organization, wherever that may be. Now, this one, like the whiskey barrel stout, is the biggest spender, but in the course of a year it's not that bad this is only two thousand dollars a year for the whiskey barrel stout partnership so friends there are different levels of um, individual like kind of sponsorships. so we'll talk about that on another episode and hopefully that's going to be online as well different levels of brewery sponsorships too what you can do right now is you can just simply go online and you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, at Brew Theology, and make sure you follow us on Twitter, at brew underscore theology. Have fun and listen to this great episode called Rags to Ridges. Make sure you share that hopalicious brew. Okay, here we are. You got <laughs> ready to rock and roll? Ready to go. That's not too much enthusiasm. (laughs) There we go. This is a call
1: and response. All right,
0: call and response. We're in church tonight. So we're doing Racks to Riches tonight, liberation theology, preferential treatment of the poor. I got some friends here in the headquarters. This is the headquarters right here in the living room. So (laughs) I'm Ryan, and I grew up Southern Baptist evangelical. I quit being that about 18 years ago due to the women in ministry issue have then become more modern evangelical over the years, but now I would consider myself a large tent Jesus follower with gleanings from Anabaptist, Methodist, Jewish, and Pentecostal. So as I say every week, I'm an evolving Anabaptist, Metho, Jew, Costal follower of Jesus, and who knows where that will lead me in a year from now.
2: All right. I'm Andy. I grew up in an interfaith household, Um, so my dad's whole family was Jewish, my mom's whole family was Christian. Um, When I was I guess in elementary school, I decided Christianity was for me, partially because my community was there, and that faith has evolved ever since. Um, I am heavily influenced now by process thought and process theology, um, as well as there's a lot of liberationist influence on my beliefs. So I'm really excited about this talk tonight.
3: Uh, Hey, guys. I'm Vlad Kondruchuk. Um, I grew up as an atheist, I guess, from Eastern Europe. Uh, So the history there played a part. And then just recently I started to being more interested in religion in the Eastern Orthodox Church, so don't know much about it, but want to learn more.
1: I'm Kyle Ramsey Sumner. Um, I grew up in a um, evangelical, very Calvinist um, tradition, Um, and very early on through issues of theodicy, kind of moved away from that, um, questioned a lot of things. Still had a lot of friends who were Christian, um, didn't like the fact that they were Christian very much, um, but would still every now and then attend church with them just to critique what was going on, because why not? Um, Later on, towards the end of high school, um, beginning of college, I got introduced to liberation theology. Um, At the same time, I was being introduced to leftist politics through punk music, Um, found those things. In dialogue with each other um, found a lot of interest through that and that led me to Colorado here um, where I now go to I love school of theology and study theology um, and animal rights ethics um, and how that relates to anarchism and anti-capitalism
4: my name is Amanda Gilbert I am the resident atheist of the group I just
3: tonight <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm very psychoso. Like,
4: <laughs> I can say that because I'm going last. <laughs> and I grew up in, at a non-denominational Christian church that uh, you might be familiar with, the Salvation Army, so very um, centered on public service, which was very beneficial to my upbringing. However, I moved away from Christianity uh, when I got into college. So that's kind of where I am. All right.
0: Well, thank you all for being here tonight. I'm sure we will not all agree on all things, and that's part of the beautiful tension of our pub group that meets every week. So this is a microcosm of that. We're going to go over the notes that some of you may have read online or not, but we'll do it anyway, and you can fast forward through this part. So, A Preferential Option for the Poor, Does God Choose Sides, by Andy Millman to my right. Although many people in the United States experienced the 1960s and 70s, as a time of peace and prosperity. The same cannot be said for the global community. With the Cold War ramping up, leaders in the East and West both vied for resources, forged unstable alliances, deposed leaders, and fought proxy wars around the globe in order to secure their seat at the top. Unsurprisingly, those hit hardest were the economically and
2: politically disenfranchised. In the midst of this political and economic instability, a new school of thought, later named liberation theology, began to rise up as people of faith started to rethink their religious structures. The school of thought began within the Roman Catholic Church, but has since been adapted by many other denominations and religious groups as well. Because liberation theology is highly contextual, it's hard to pin down an exact definition, but most liberation theologies have the same core tenets.
3: A desire to return to the practices of the early church with a particular focus on the decentralization of political, cultural, and religious power, an understanding that God slash the divine has a preferential option for the poor, a belief that orthopraxis, right action, leads to orthodoxy, right thought, rather than the other way around, and a belief that truth is reached through community and that faith is inherently communal. In
1: the Latin American context, liberation theology took root most heavily with leftists and political dissents who were being targeted for, by those in power. Many Christians who held to this school of thought were labeled as Soviet sympathizers and communist rebels and were imprisoned or even murdered across Central and South America. Similarly, the Roman Catholic Church that birthed liberation theology saw the fast-growing liberationist movement as a challenge to the institutional power that, had it, enjoyed for, that it had enjoyed for millennia. Priests were sanctioned, relocated, and in some cases defrocked for their solidarity with the marginalized and oppressed masses.
4: On the other side of things, many proponents of liberation theology felt that it was their duty as people of faith to take up arms against unjust social, political, and economic systems, faith communities congregations of common folk who followed the teachings of liberation theologians and sought a non-hierarchical social structure in places like Nicaragua became strongholds for Sandinista rebels, and the line between combatants and non-combatants became blurred. When all was said and done, entire villages had been wiped off the map because of their dedication to liberation theology.
0: While all of this was taking place to the south of the U.S., a similar school of thought began to take root within the African-American community. When James Cone wrote his most influential work, A Black Theology of Liberation, he provided a theological framework that meshed with the black power movement in order to combat white supremacy and oppression. Using the Exodus narrative, Cone claimed that God was not only concerned with the plot of the poor and marginalized, but actively identified with the poor and marginalized. As such, Cone unapologetically claimed that God
2: is black. In the latter half of the 20th century and the first decades of the 21st, many other groups have taken I- the ideals behind liberation theology and applied them to other social contexts. A quick search on Amazon for liberation theology will bring a pitch from everything, including everything from feminist, womanist, and queer liberation theologies that attempt to address social inequality based on sexual orientation and gender identity to Dalit and Palestinian liberation theologies that attempt to address oppression based on ethnic and class identities. OK. There's a
0: lot there, a lot to digest. And so everybody ready to breathe in, breathe out, and let's do it. What's what's your relationship to liberation theology? Did you grow up with it? When were you introduced to it? Where does it fit within your current beliefs and your previous beliefs? Those are two different questions. So I did not grow up with liberation theology. This was not on the Southern Baptist radar. To my knowledge, yes, there was a lot of mission-minded stuff, and we would send people to different countries and they would come back and we'd take an offering during Christmas time but this was not the purpose, that was not the focus of the missionaries the missionaries were to save souls not to, you know, to liberate them from economic oppression so I mean, Kyle and I we have shared similar stories and you can talk about yours but uh, for me it was re- reading Shane Claiborne was the first introduction to anything that was liberating. So as somebody who worked in the modern evangelical church world for many years, I picked up that book in 2005. And here was just a a pastor in Philly trying to make sense of the words of Jesus, make sense of the poor and scripture, and he started to live this out. Really wrecked me, uh, broke me, and then I wanted I wanted to sell a, sell our car and live in a van down by the river, the whole house, you know, sell the house, sell it all. And it was I remember I mean if I brought Lauren in the room, she would be laughing right now because I, that pendulum swung hard once I read that book, and I read it about three times, and then I had to get all my friends to read it. And so then after that, you know, theologians like John Sabrino came later, but I did I had no idea who Gutierrez, Sabrino, Cone. I mean, I, I read Cone for the first time three years ago. So 2005 was my first introduction and, and I, I wonder why, well we can get to that later, why my certain
2: upbringing didn't even talk about this or my theological education for that matter. So I, I grew up in a church that might be called a church of empire and that I was in a military town. Um, the kind of ideals of America gung-ho definitely rang true in my church. And so this idea of an anti-empire, or an ideologist based on deconstructing empire and deconstructing those kind of oppressive systems, um, there was no space for that in the church that I grew up in. As I got older, um, I started reading. So my first person I read was suggested by my advisor in seminary, um, but it was Gutierrez. And so I read A Theology of Liberation. Um, and that kind of rocked my world. And it's a tome. It's a pretty massive book. Um, but it was early on in seminary, and that forced me to rethink everything, and so um, it was very destabilizing when I first encountered liberation theology, but now I've been able to um, see kind of the merits and see how that fits in with my own story and the story of the the different cultures that make up who I am. So,
3: so uh, when I was growing up, um, I mean, you would hear this thing that the this, this saying that Jesus was the first communist. It was still kind of a vestigial part of the Soviet Union that was still left around and older people used to say it. And I always thought it was kind of crazy. I mean, it, it definitely relates to this. Uh, I in, first encountered liberation theology when I went to university and uh, I was a leftist, like most people are when they're at university. And they make you take very left-leaning classes, and you come across the stuff. Thought it was a great idea for a while. Then, what uh, came away from that, or I guess turned turned my back on that. Um, I don't think it, it it fits into into my current belief structure in the sense that everywhere that it's been applied, I see it failing, and and turning. It has good intentions. I don't think that the people that that. Advocated are bad people, but I, I think that it just misinterprets how the world actually functions, and as a consequence of that, things fall apart.
0: Yeah, and you had mentioned that last week too that everywhere mm-hmm. where this liberation theology took on communal effort and momentum, that it failed wherever it went.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I think the biggest reason, be, uh, be, of why it is like that is because, well, one of the biggest reasons is because. It, it kind of has a very like internationalist feel to it. It's, like, it's, it's the same reason that, 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 that the, the communist revolution never happened in Germany or in France after World War I. It's most, most people are, do not think of themselves as the international working poor or the you know, internationally oppressed. They think of themselves primarily as Italians or Germans or whatever. And uh, that's why I think that's where it fails. Yeah, and that's a very international speech. This is the same thing what we, you we were talking about, the the, the school thought uh, regarding kind of American imperialists, mm-hmm. this is gung-ho. Also, same thing, it's two internationalist in, in its approach.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll kind of swing back around at that, so appreciate that.
1: Where I grew up, I would definitely say liberation theology is considered heresy, but um, <laughs> I so, like you were saying, you read Shane Claiborne and it changed your life. I bought a Shane Claiborne book in two thousand um, and seven, re- and probably read it at the end of two thousand eight because it sat on my floor for like a year. Um, and when I read it, it, it radically changed how I viewed Christianity as as a whole. Up until that point, I was beginning to think well Christianity really is at the heart of every problem I see in the world the heart of sexism the heart of racism the heart of homophobia all these things I could trace back to you know if not Christianity itself at least I saw Christian leaders that were perpetuating these concepts and ideas Um, and for once in my life I saw something that was radically different Um, and as someone who was already being introduced to leftist thought um, through punk music and through hardcore um, it was something that was just kind of like, it caught my attention. I won't say I got completely on board. It was just more like, oh, wow, like this Jesus guy is a lot different than I remember. Um, and I think I, for a while I had to dig through a lot of the, the trauma and things like that. That kind of arose with just thinking about some of the things I saw within the church growing up and beginning to have conversations engaging Christianity again. Um, and I, I think sometime after that, I read Leonardo Boff's Introduction to Liberation Theology, which is a book I would highly recommend to anyone listening to this podcast because it's. Say incredible.
0: that one more time.
1: It's. I think it's called um, an Introduction to Liberation Theology by Leonardo Boff. I could be wrong about the title, but it's something like that. Um, and about about maybe a half a year later, I took a class called um, Women in Christianity um, by a Catholic scholar at Florida State University, um, and. And that's where I was introduced to feminist theology. Um, I read Mary Daly for the first time, and just the idea of questioning God's pronoun, the idea of, like, well, why does God have to be a man? Um, God is a woman. Um, and and those, those types of notions were just like, holy cow, this is insane. This is radically different than anything I've ever even begun to, to thought about and, and deconstruct um, with Christianity. Um, read James Cone, uh, read more of Bob, uh, Gutierrez... Um, and was just, you know, I, I wasn't, I won't say I was sold out, but it really started like causing me to ask a lot of questions and things like that. Um, so I would say liberation theology is something that definitely influences me currently. Um. I currently identify as an atheist. or oh, not an atheist, I'm sorry. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> not an atheist at all. So <laughs> Freudian slips. Exactly. Sorry, I would, Mom. <laughs> sorry, what Mom. what happens if you sit next to an atheist. We rub off on you. For most people, it's the same thing. I identify <laughs> as an anarchist um, and would consider my, my political views heavily influenced by the liberationist um, tradition.
4: Okay. So... As I was saying, I grew up in the Salvation Army, so I think that some of the these tenets kind of resonated with me growing up, but we never really talked about like the word liberation theology at all. Um, by the time that I would've even started to hear about this, when I started to really think about socialism and think about um, some of the social injustices that occur, uh, which I would say happened about college, that was the same time that I had kind of given up my idea of a higher power, a higher being, Uh, So this really wouldn't have, the paths would not have crossed for me. So this is kind of a new topic to me. Um, I think a lot of it resonates with me, but not the, like, religious parts of it. But I think a lot of the tenets have this ability to cross different religions and also um, into just straight uh, society in general. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'm really interested in it, and I think I'm going to read more about it um, but I don't know that I'll ever be able to completely
0: adopt it 100%. Yeah, but I think that's interesting, and Andy makes this point too, and one of the questions that we may or may not get to about how this transcends Christianity. It started within you know Roman Catholicism and Protestant, but now it's you see it within all kinds of different tribes and affiliations. So, But I am curious, so then, what, what do you all think? We'll just jump straight to it since this is Ruth theology. <laughs> do you, what do you think about this preferential treatment for the poor, this option that God has, whatever you call God, God, divine, force, consciousness, people call God all kinds of things, is there an option for the poor, does that rub you the wrong way,
3: way. is it biblical, so, I do oh, I always thought of, of Christ, or at least the impression was that he was a kind of a suffering God, a suf- you know, the, the image of Christ is kind of a suffering Christ, and in, I don't know, I guess Eastern European or Eastern Orthodox theology. Um, and the fact that the poor suffer almost makes them a little bit, I don't know, I can't say holier, but do, do you know what I'm, I'm getting at? More closer to God, kind of living through his experiences on a daily basis, makes them more humble. It gives a, it gives a lot of virtue to a person's existence to go without material need or material things. So I always thought that, yeah, I I, I, I don't think that, mm, I I don't think that God disfavors the rich or hates them or whatever, but I, I do think like, you know, saying that it's it's easier for a rich man to get into, what was that called? It's easier for a poor man or a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that makes it difficult. All, all the material things get kind of in the way of, of living yeah. kind of closer to like, not a monastic, but a very like yeah. pure life. And,
0: yeah, and that seems to be like a discipleship thing where, whereas this liberation theology is more of a, these people are Potentially, what this is all, I know, debatable, trapped in this system of oppression, economic, political, also theological. And so then is there, is there a divine or a force or a God who says, this system is shit, and I want you to wreck it from the inside out or from the
2: outside in? Yeah, so I, as a Christian, I bring my biases in that sense. Um, but if I look at scripture, so I look at Luke chapter 4, it's the first time in that book that uh, Christ speaks and it says this, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to pro- proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to do- proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, so I mean, for me, like that's something that I put weight in as a Christian is the, the text. And this is the first public message he gives. Is
0: and, and interestingly, this is about the year of jubilee mm-hmm. too. And he says, "Ah, today this thing, right? It's, it's been fulfilled it's, me." It's this. fulfilled. That's a mic drop. Mm-hmm. And then and then they went out to stone him, and mm-hmm. then he slipped through the crowd. Mm-hmm.
3: People forget about
2: that. Yeah, like he people got pissed off when he said this message, and Nolly was reading, reading scripture to a group
3: of people, saying, "This is what I'm doing." Okay, so I I, I immediately have an issue with it. Um, The reason why he was crucified was partially because he... The Jews were expecting to see a savior coming in who was going to be essentially a leader, right? Like a, a person that was going to cause revolt against the Romans, right? The Jews are, in this case, if we're going to dissect this thing, they're the oppressed people. They're living under Caesar, you know, who is not, you know, is oppressing them. If Jesus Christ was this guy, I mean, uh, he could have very easily become that savior, right? I mean, one quote, maybe it's a salient quote, but to me, it it seems like the rest of the book doesn't lead to that. Why didn't that happen?
4: So the thing that sort of confuses me about the preferential option for the four, um, and I did, like, bring this up at the pub, but... Uh, we have kind of a new table here, so that's fun, Uh, is that question of if you have, given the assumption that you have a God who is capable of um, having a hand in what our day-to-day life looks like, what our society looks like, what we as human beings look like, then why is it that some people are oppressed and why would he have a preferential option for those people when he was the one that oppress them in the first place, at the root of it. Um, I think that's where I kind of struggle, uh, and it it all goes off the assumption that he has a hand in what is going on, he or she or...
3: But that attacks free will, too. I mean, you would expect hierarchical societies...
4: But not, but not everything poor is free will, right? So like, so like people that are oppressed because of their gender, that's sure. not necessarily free will, right? Yeah, so there it, is a free will component to it, but it's not...
3: If you start at the beginning, you say people have free will, then they will erect the type of institutions that oppress other people over time, who then other people are born into, and then, yeah, they're stuck in this matrix where we can't... But that's entirely constructed by man, Do you know what I mean?
4: Yes and no. I think this is where it all gets kind of gray, and I think free will kind of com- comes into this, right? Yeah. Because, um, yes, God gives you free will, but he also creates the the people, he creates their ability to have free will, and so there's all these questions of if he really has this preferential like treatment of people that are poor, right? Why would he have any more treatment of them over someone who's rich, right, in the same society that he created? If they all had free will and they evolved in such a way that they became not oppressed why would he have a preferential option so I think any way you kind of look at it I kind of get questions of I get stuck a little bit mm-hmm. in every direction
3: yeah so what, I, I'm still expecting an answer okay.
0: um, So there are two different things three, three different things going on right? No, I I can, no. so, like, so I, I do want to go back to Vlad's um, messiah what happened to that messiah and then the, the free will thing, and then the, so. But you know, Kyle, you hadn't talked about preferential option of the poor.
1: The only thing I would add is, is the other day when we were at Caroline's birthday party, and Caroline was running off, kind of farther than you're used to. Uh, you, can, you kind of had your eye on her the whole time that she was out there, um, and I think th- this is kind of the the idea that comes up to me whenever I think of preferential option for the poor. I think so. You're having a new kid coming up soon.
0: By the time <laughs> this thing gets released, I, possibly, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So,
1: so. Hey, she's I, here. If, if she was, if she was <laughs> there as well, you know, in in her stroller or whatever you might have had her in, you know, and she was safe, but Caroline was still out there. You would you would have a preferential option in that moment for Caroline to make sure that she was safe because you because you cared about her because you love her it doesn't make you love your other child any less but you know when someone's in danger when someone's hurting you tend to have your eye on them you tend to care about them Um, you tend to kind of go that extra step to make sure that they're safe Um, and I think that's that's the notion that I get whenever I hear this idea of preferential option for the poor Um, which I think often is mistaken as well God cares for the poor and doesn't care about the rich or God cares for the oppressed and doesn't care about the oppressor um, and I think that dichotomy is something that liberation theology tends to try to steer away from. And, it's, and I think it is more of a, of a loving concern for those who are most oppressed in society. But that doesn't eliminate concern for also the oppressor. or. Sure, yeah.
0: The one kid is in the stroller. Somebody, hey, you got your eye on them? Great, I'm going to go get my other kid. Mm-hmm. The rich, the wealthy, the powerful, you guys are okay. Okay, let's go then look for the people who are on the side of the road Um, who don't have a father or a mother, who are in addiction. Yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. That makes
2: sense. And not not to make things too political, um, but I see parallels with the Black Lives Matter movement and how there's this view of if you are saying this group of people has a distinct need, that that takes away from the needs of others. It takes away from the need to be in solidarity and ministry with those others. Um, I, I use the trauma example. If you have a traumatic event that happens, you're going to go to the person who has a severed leg before you go to the person who has a cut on their hand, because the reality is there's just a different need in that moment. And so it's not saying you don't help that person with a cut on the hand, but it yeah. says you have to prioritize. Um, yeah, we're not saying that all lives don't matter; they right. do. But right now, the black lives
3: need attention. Yes. Okay. But I think the assumption is that God comes to these people, and they're the immovable—they're uh, the immovable object. Whereas in my understanding, God is the Greek God; He's, he's the unmovable God. You go to Him, right? He doesn't come around and kind of—I know it's a poor analogy because of the sheep—but shepherds people in to go back to him. That—that's a choice of free will, you know. I think the reason why the poor are actually, in a theological sense, better off. Like I said, is because they live without a lot of the material comforts that tend to make men soft and weaker and, and more indulgent and, and all these things that that uh, lead you astray into temptation. But not because, you know, like, they're suffering and then God comes out of nowhere. That does. I mean, I don't know. In, in, in my experience, I haven't seen, I mean, I've seen some of it where it's like, but, you know what I mean? Like, I don't see a lot of that happening.
0: Let's go, let's go back because I know we're boom, boom, boom. <laughs> I want to go back to your Jesus, Messiah, um, back to this quote from Isaiah 61, yes. the year of Jubilee. And so, in you know, a Vlad, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, what did you say back about five minutes ago within 30 seconds or 15 seconds? And, so, the, and then so that, so that we said we're going to go
3: back to it. Now we're back to it. So the reason why Jesus Christ was rejected as far as Jewish theology as far as I know, you can correct me, is that they were expecting a messiah, they still are, who is a very material messiah, who's going to come back, create peace on this earth. Uh, and, and during that time, they were thinking about an overthrow of the Roman Empire, or at least getting Judea and Israel back. That didn't happen, that's, that's why he was rejected. So, according to cultural, um, I was gonna say cultural Marxism, to me it's the same <laughs> thing. According to liberation theology, uh, the In this case, the Jews would be the oppressed. The Romans would be the oppressors. If if Jesus Christ or, you know, if he was for liberation theology, he would have just done that. He would have just come back, been the great general everyone was expecting. I, and, and I think that that's, that's actually,
0: this is a good segue into the violent Jesus. Because in some societies, and some cultures, past, present, and I guarantee future, Jesus is this militant, zealous... Kind of figure, and then we here we're Westerners. I mean, Vlad, it's sure you're not you're you're grafted close. into the West, yeah, close cousin, but yeah, you but you live here now, so like we've kind of in, inherited this, and this is what Dr. Miguel de la Torre talked about this sort of peaceful, pacifist, Anabaptist Jesus that we got from you know this Anabaptist tradition handed down to us. So, uh, which one is it? I mean, if last episode was Dr you know, de la Torre talking about this, you know, not, not a violent Jesus, but as Kyle would probably say it more profound, um, a, a Jesus who is human, right. Who has this violent side, but yeah, who wants to be a peaceful person. But now you have these movements that you need to have the violent and you need to have the peaceful. Do you need them both? Or I don't know where you guys stand on this. Because according according Jesus to what you said is not about
3: a political figure, that's the my, thing is like he doesn't drive the way that governments should function or the way that military should work. He governs. He says yeah. this governs you as an individual. So, but you, but do you have to understand, outside of your individual life, you still have to belong to a society mm-hmm. which needs to have borders, which needs to have a military, which needs to do violent things. I mean, you, you're still part of this Hobbesian, yeah. you know, Leviathan that you have to live with. So my pushback um, with what you said, and this is
2: going to go back like two minutes, but you were talking about Jesus and the Jews. Um, Throughout it was Jesus was crucified by the Romans. Yeah. He was crucified as a political dissident. He was somebody who was insurrectionist. He was somebody who was saying we need to challenge the structure. And so from my reading of scripture, which take it as you will, um, I do see a very political Christ. I see somebody who's saying we are going, but even saying Jesus is Lord is saying that Caesar is not. That's a political statement.
3: But there was a moment where the Pharisees could have saved him, they chose not to, right? Well, they was, came directly to them. They're like, Do you want this guy off the cross? I said, No, this guy's causing too much trouble. So there's a difference between Kill so him.
0: there are Pharisees, now I know we're rabbit trailing, <laughs> but this is important. So there are Pharisees, there are Sadducees, and then there's a Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin okay. was it's like Congress and it's a mix of both. Sadducees had the upper hand in the first century. So you have it's a very powerful, very elite and they had they were in bed with the Roman Empire. They they didn't speak for the rest of the Jews. They were pretty much, like I said, in bed with Rome. So you could say, yeah, they're Jew, but yeah, for the most part, they identified with Rome. And the rest of the Jews were, uh, I mean, 90-something percent of them were poor. They were oppressed. I mean, even in Galilee, where Jesus did the majority, if not all, of his ministry except for the last bit. That's where that's where the poorest of poor were.
3: Well, I think that, I don't know, you have to historically then look and see what percentage converted then to Christianity after. If, they, if you what you're saying is they were really for Christ, then you would expect to see a massive conversion. And I don't know what the archaeological evidence on that is, I, but I, I don't think that it was... I think the, the church had still quite a bit of work to do to get to set up new communities and all these things, right? The, the church didn't become the church that
4: we
0: know it well, that we knew it if we do church history until Constantine came around. Before that, yeah, three hundred years. Yeah, but I mean, before the, even before the tipple collapsed in seventy AD, I mean, you had a bunch of just poor people, Lebanon poor people.
3: Yeah, But I'm just saying, like to your <laughs> point, like there there would have been quite a bit of a conversion if what you're saying is yeah. he was a political Christ. Okay. The the Sadducees didn't represent him. And then he died. You would have you would have seen at least some kind of movement in in that yeah. direction. And I don't think yeah, that there, there, historically there that was happened. within Judaism. I don't think like like I would
0: agree with you. Not many Christians, at least in that time, that we have a record of. But we do have record of Christians in other areas of church history who have been violent in the name of Christ, in the name of the gospel, and the kingdom of heaven. So then that that kind of leads itself to the, this question here. I mean, is is there merit to? militant, violent res, you know, this insurrectionist, let's go
1: so, so I'll, I'll add something to that and I think one thing I wanted, you, wanted to add is I think Vlad, you're right, that they were expecting like the, the Jewish people were expecting a messiah that was going to come in and annihilate the Roman Empire to establish the kingdom of God on earth, um, and I think when we look at the life of Jesus and with that expectation, we're let down, I mean, it seems like, oh, well, this is an ultimate failure Um, But then when, when to me, and this is my reading of scripture as well, and so I'm bringing my own hermeneutic and my own perspective into this, Um, but when I read the scripture, I see Jesus as shattering the expectations of both the Roman Empire and and the, the, the people that were expecting him to be this figure that they were expecting. Um, and I, I see him as being an agitator, someone who is deeply political, someone who, when he says, I am Lord, he is he is opposing himself against empire. Um, that when, when whenever he's crucified on the cross, he's crucified as a public political figure um, in, in opposition to the Roman Empire. And I think um, the, this really sets, I think, the, the narrative for liberation theology coming out of that tradition Um, Viewing these instances where where Jesus is constantly challenging the empire, um, and then viewing like one of the tenets we read earlier was like wanting to get back to what the early church looked like. Um, And I think there's a bazillion perspectives on what the early church looks like. So I think we have to be super careful there, um, because everyone wants their early church to look like what they think the early church looks like. Um, But I think this idea of community, this idea of poor people mobilizing, and and living freely um, uh, in, in opposition to these laws that were binding them. Um, saying, well, these laws don't abide... Th- I don't have to abide by these laws because I have the law of love. Um, and I think those concepts really kind of are what lend itself to the liberation narrative. Um, and, th- and then I want to say people tend to... Um, from their own perspective um, especially people who are constructing liberation theologies out of their own context um, kind of contextualizing that and saying well this is my response to that Um, and I think what we were talking about earlier um, God's preferential option for the poor um, however communities kind of take that what liberation theology wants to say is well we don't need to just apply that theologically we apply that socially, ethically, politically economically like and 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 I think that's whenever it begins it begins to be influenced by social thought, so, social theory, um, critical theory, uh, political theory, um, philosophical uh, concepts, those types of things. And I think that's that's where liberation theology kind of buds, I think, and becomes something really beautiful. But also that's where it becomes incredibly diverse mm-hmm. because different liberation theologians are influenced by different political theory and different social theory and those types of things. Well,
3: okay. Sorry, you go first.
4: I would argue that it sort of has to um, because I really liked your analogy earlier. I think it sounds it sounds really nice. Uh, the analogy of, you know, you have one kid who is kind of safe and another kid is off, so you pay more attention to that one kid. The one place where I think I have a little bit of an issue with it upon further reflection is if you were the parent and let's say your kid fell down and got hurt, you could run to them and help them. Um, But we don't really necessarily see that happening in like a day to day life sort of thing. The only way that it does happen is if socially we get together and we say we need to protect people that are poor because our systems are not doing the right thing. Um, So I guess I kind of question the preferential option for the poor just because I'm wondering, how is it that God plays a part in that? Right? It, it seems more to me like it's the people and the society that are playing a part in uh, trying to build systems to help those that are impoverished.
1: Yeah, I think I think your critique is inc- incredibly important, and I think I have the exact same critique, except that the only way I get out of that is, is through process thought and through and through the idea of God not being this. Greek manifestation like this Aristotelian idea of power and this Aristotelian concept of um, like a god that is all-powerful all-loving all-knowing um, I, I don't think that a god like that I mean this is this is for a different Podcast, right? But, but,
0: but, I think but, we're going to record that one next week. <laughs> All right. Exactly. Let's do it. Let's do theodicy next week.
1: And, and so maybe maybe we shouldn't go there. But but I do I, I see the same exact problem when you take classical theology and you apply it to a liberationist lens. I see a vast amount of problems that arise with that. So I definitely want to acknowledge that.
2: And part of the liberation theology is a constructive theology, so it's theology from below. Instead of saying here's a truth statement that we're then going to see how that fits into our lives, it's saying here's our lived experience. How does that speak the truth? And so like you were saying, that's why it is you know, a queer liberation theology versus a womanist liberation theology versus a Latin American liberation theology look very, very different because they are all constructed from below. Um, but I think power, I, I completely agree. I think that power conversation has shifted from back in the time of you know the unmoved mover. I think if not, it's the most moved mover when I think of God. Um, so I think that you can't bring those two models together
3: as if they're timeless because I think they're both so contextually bound. I just, I, I have this issue with Christ as this rebel. But I don't see him. OK, so from what I can remember, the fact that he was crucified publicly as a kind of rebellion against the Roman Empire, everybody was publicly crucified. That was a public execution, so even uh, you know, that had to have happened. Uh, there, there are multiple, multiple times when he, he could have taken up the sword and could have could have led the Jewish people into political rebellion. He didn't. He actually, for quite, as far as I know, cooperated with the Romans on on many issues. I don't know the exact details, but um, as far as what else did we get into from what what i can remember the fact that you know don't you think that it's weird the fact that this theology can apply to like you know or liberation theology can be applied to like a queerist theology like you know black lives matter like this like it doesn't even seem like a theology it just seems like a political idea they dressed it in you know Church clothes, and they said, "Here you go." I think there was actually—I'm—I'm not—I'm gonna have to look this up, but I think the the CIA actually uh, blamed the KGB for starting this thing. And I wouldn't—I wouldn't doubt it. The KGB were very tricky people, not good people, but they were very tricky. It, it's literally a political ideology that can be applied to Muslims, to Jews, to Buddhists, to—I mean. It's so wide that maybe there is some truth in it, but I can't even see how it's Christian in the next I, 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 I can see how you, how you could think that and say that, absolutely. And I think in,
0: there are probably many people, either those who are listening or who aren't listening, who would totally agree with you. And Andy do. does it. Andy <laughs> does it, but Amanda does. Yeah,
4: I do, and, and I think that's where it resonates with me, because politically it resonates with me, sure. but when I get to the actual theology part of it, that's where I have a million and one questions mm-hmm. that I feel like I, I mean, I, this is why I want to read on it more, because I think it could be answered, potentially, um, but I haven't had that happen yet.
0: So, it
2: Okay, go ahead. go ahead. One last thing on this one, one then one. we're going to move on to something that still still applies to this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, so my question back would be, what theology or ideology isn't impacted by culture around it? So I would say that if you look at Christianity, at large in the U.S., it's a capitalist ideology. And American exceptionalism, American empire plays heavily into any christianity you're going to see in the states and so i would say that this idea that because there's an outside ideological influence that it's invalid i mean every okay, every is, structure has outside ideological influence.
3: this is gonna get scruffy but okay <laughs> uh, fine um well, i mean my right don't be mad at me but i think as far as i understand protestantism was a rebellion against catholicism and orthodoxy right the two branches that came out of out of that were the two original churches. There were, I mean, there were there were other there were Gnostics, and they were there were uh, yeah less issue with orthodoxy because Protestants had no idea
0: about that. Right, they <laughs> we just yeah. ignored it. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but there was there was no iPhone to check on the Orthodox Christians. It was all Catholics.
3: And and you see the capitalist revolution <laughs> happening. Well, you see the first pre-capitalist societies outside. I'll, I'll I'll grant you this. Outside of the Italian states. Who were already, if you if you remember, were already going against Catholicism. That's why you had Savonarola going in there, they're having the you know bonfire, the vanities, because they're already moving away from Christianity. So if you look at it from a Catholic point of view, Protestantism as the act of moving away from the one true Christianity. You have the first Dutch societies, which are capitalist. England becomes Protestant it becomes a capitalist society. You have, for example, what does the Catholicism say about loans? It's forbidden, right? Can't do it. Well, what happens when Calvinists uh, get on the scene? They say, well, so long as the loan is a material loan, so long as it's a business loan, it's okay. So you already have a deviation from that. So yes, of course, uh, you know, if the pilgrims are coming from Britain, it's already a capitalist society. Once they land in America, of course, they're going to be Mm capitalists, you know? So yeah, Um, as far as your original question, like I think that... The change happened in religion first, then it happened in the society versus happening in the society against religion. I, we've already talked about it. I, I, I look at religion as the foundational thing. I, 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 there's never been a civilization without a founding core religion. Egyptians had their own religion. The Persians had Zoroastrianism. The Greeks had their own pantheon. The Romans were, were as a continuation of Greek society, had their own pantheon. Give and it about 100 re- years. <laughs> and, and when the religion falls, usually the 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 society that's associated with it goes away too.
0: But what if it's just a bad religion, which it has been, and it continues to be in so many different societies? No. I think that's where liberation theology speaks because it always speaks into bad religion doesn't it? It always has if you go back to, you go back to the exodus that story, the foundational story from the Judeo-Christian you know, narrative bad religion right so then this cries out you, know, you cry out to God, fight for the oppressed and then I mean that, that's the story that then sort of shines a light on all these other stories, that's probably how we even interpret Isaiah 61 today It's from the exodus narrative So is it all, I mean, mean, going back to politics, though, I mean, because what you had said, do we have these politics, and do we just clothe it in religion? How do you have it? How how can you say we have foundational religion? Maybe we don't. Maybe we never have. Maybe it's always been clothed, right? We just clothe our politics in religion.
1: So so I want to say something. So I I think, like earlier you said, it feels like a political ideology clothed in, like, religious clothing. Or something to that And effect. it can change quotes. And, and, and I, on I can totally it. see how it can come across that way. Um, but I, I think... So I'm taking an ethical analysis and advocacy class with Dr. Delatorre right now. And so this week, actually, we went over the liberationist motif. So this is, like, super, like, in my mind right now. Um, but I, I see li- liberation rhetoric as an ethical paradigm, not a, not a political, ideological paradigm. Um, so... When I think of it, I see, a so you like when you have like modernity arise, you always have post right alongside that. Like, when you have a concept that is considered the status quo, you always have a concept underneath that, embedded in that re- that resists that concept. Um, so, everything that is that comes about in dominant culture, there's always a reaction to that. There's always a resistance. So, yeah, there's there's always a resistance to that. Um, And what this ethical paradigm is trying to say is what does it look like if we listen to that paradigm the the voices that are suppressed that typically don't that we don't listen to because we ascribe to this dominant narrative um the people who live on on the underneath side of that they their voice doesn't get heard often so the the idea is what is what if we listen to that and what if we try to bridge that gap across that line of difference and say well how, how do I live my life in a way that restricts you from moving freely in the world? Um, and, and what does that look like in light of how I conceptualize morality and ethics and things like that? And when you take that idea and you place it on religion, when, if you view Jesus as a political figure, um, if you view Jesus as someone who is identifying with humanity, with the dirty, nasty parts of humanity, then you have to say, well, how does this ethic and this hermeneutic that I bring to the text align with one another? And what does that look like to live into that? And how does my lived experience inform that as well?
4: But, but I think that ethical paradigm is what can be, like, picked up and moved, right? Because ethics and... Religion and spirituality are not one and the same, right? right? Not every spiritual person is ethical, and likewise, not every non-spiritual person. You know what I mean? It goes. You see ethical and non-ethical people all across the board, mm-hmm. and so I think that's why we, it has that ability to transcend. Yeah. The question becomes: How important is the tie to Christianity as a part of liberation theology? Is it completely necessary, or is that ethical paradigm something that can be taken out and applied? vastly, internationally, as you were talking about earlier, and to many different sects of people. The
3: fact that it can be means that it's very loosely attached, I think, right? The fact that it can be taken and you don't have to change anything, you just have to change the names, and it it can go wherever it wants.
1: I think you could say that about any ethical concept, though. I mean, you could say that about the idea of love, like loving your neighbor, that transcends religion, that transcends... Um, any cate- category that you try to put yourself
3: in. But loving your neighbor is a very universal rule, I think. I mean, it, it, and it, it comes kind of out of the Abrahamic traditions. I don't think that loving your neighbor in Papua New Guinea or when they were like eating people, I don't know. I, I think that's where they were, right? I don't want to offend any islanders here. But, you know, that concept wasn't applied. I, 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 um... So, and and, and love is just, like, it's a very general, like, abstract concept. I think think the question with the neighbor has, for me,
0: always been, in the rabbinical sense, going back to that, is, well, who is your neighbor? And so when Jesus then is asked that question, he's always pushing, trying to move beyond, okay, you've got your Orthodox Jew, then you have your secular Jew, now you have your Roman. So it's like, okay, some Jews are getting a little bit squirmy. You said Roman, I'm out of here. But then he goes to Samaritan, so... Jesus is like no, no loving these people are easy, and not one Jew would have been like oh yeah right love your Samaritan that's that's great like Jesus always as a Christian I'm looking at that pushing the envelope on who to love so loving your neighbor yes a bit universal but then uh, okay so who is who is the neighbor today and I would I would go to where you know what Kyle has been saying you have this narrative who's on the underside of this narrative here who's the oppressed who is the Samaritan. The Samaritan is so, then let's end on black lives. Let's All just right. do that because and we, have, we have maybe five to ten minutes. Yeah, five to ten minutes to talk about <laughs> James Cone. And James Cohn says that God is black. Who wants to give more context to that in about 30 seconds? Go for it.
2: I guess that's me. Um, so, James Cohn, African American preacher, when he talked about God is black, he was talking about blackness being a thing that is despised, a thing that is seen as less than, and so by saying God is black, he's saying that God, in God's very nature, is in solidarity with those who are on the underside. And in the U.S. context, that was black people. Um, there are people who will say that God is a Palestinian. So if you look at Palestinian liberal theology, there are people who say, they focus very much on this, this is a Palestinian God, because this identity as a Palestinian is tied to the people in that region. And so, um, yes the blackness of God is important to Cone, but more important is the fact that it is a God who is in solidarity at all times with those who are on the underside. That'd be kind of how I frame it. Only because they're black, or...? Because they're a disenfranchised population. So it's it's saying that God and God's nature is disenfranchised. What if they
3: live in a multi-million dollar house? Is God still black for them? So this is where
2: intersectional identities come in. I don't know if anybody wants to take that. I mean I don't know <laughs> I think I'm talking a lot, sense. that's why I, I don't want to be no, like, you're not, not in conversation you're, you're not talking a lot, go um, So I would say that when you look at intersectionality as an idea that we have multiple identities, we have multiple things constantly in conversation with each other so you can be an African American with lots of wealth and you can have privilege because of that but the color of your skin still means that you have a higher chance of being arrested, um, you have a higher chance of being charged if you are arrested, you have a higher chance of having a negative encounter with a police officer in the US, so these are things that are Sociologically proven so yeah you have privilege here, but that identity is still something that, that carries with it all of you know Hundreds of years of oppression that are put upon that person So you can't say this person is fully marginalized fully not but you can't take away the fact that that black identity
3: This is like one of the things that pisses me off about cultural Marxism so much And It's like Trotsky said the same thing, right? They define this class as the the bourgeoisie and this other class is the proletariat. Yeah. And like the person that, that's useful to them, that's the bourgeoisie, right? So like I'll give you an example. What Trotsky it was like a, you know for him, a priest living somewhere in Siberia on a small farm would have been a bourgeoisie. But the people that financed his his communism in the former Soviet Union or like what what they were doing even though they were multi-millionaires, they were the proletariat, right? So now we have the same thing. This was economic Marxism. Now we're gonna transfer it to cultural Marxism. This guy, who probably vlogs to like, some awesome like, country club, like r- drives a Ferrari, and, you know, like, has an awesome life, he's oppressed, but me, because I'm a white male, I, I'm the oppressor here, right? Right? Like, I mean, come on.
2: So what I'm saying is it's not a clear black and white because you have multiple identities as well. So you may have identities that put you at an advantage and you may have identities that put you at a disadvantage culturally.
3: But um, something like tally them up, I mean, well, first of all, I I disagree with this whole idea that you can, you can dissect the individual into whatever quality. I mean, the, the word individual undivided, right? Now now we've gotten to such a le- crazy level of postmodern thought that before we started with communities, started dividing communities. These are gays, these are transsexuals, these are blacks, these are, whereas before they were you know, all Americans. Now we've gotten all the way down to the individual, where we're dissecting the individual. They're going, yes, you're white, but maybe you have red hair that puts you in this case. It's come on. If we keep on doing this, I don't know where we're going to get to. Transhumanism, maybe? I think that's a possibility.
4: I don't mean to be at all offensive to you. Go for but it. I do all think that you're speaking from a place of privilege. Um, and I speak from a place of privilege as well. Okay? okay, I think that's a difficult thing to recognize sometimes. But I think you have to take yourself out of that for a second and realize that at our nature, we have issues typically with putting people into categories because it kind of comes from like a survival instinct right if you can categorize someone before you really get to know them yeah, it you can protect survive. yourself right and so I'm sure everyone sitting in this room can can think of at least one time when they've protected themselves against something that they've had a negative experience All with, with stereotypes. in the past
3: sure.
4: right and so to say that that doesn't happen or that some people are like that it's not right to sit there and break down and say okay this person is black it does affect them whether or not they have other privilege affecting them is sort of um I don't I don't want to use the word ignorant because I really don't want to affect like offend anybody but I feel like for instance I grew up Right? doing computer science my whole life. I've been doing it since I was little. I went to a science and tech school oh. and I did it all through college. And yet when I apply for jobs, people think that I have absolutely no experience doing it because I'm a woman. And it doesn't matter that I have all of those qualifications, right? And that's a small lack of privilege. And I have a very, very privileged life. But I've seen it happen, and I think once you kind of see it happen to yourself, you can gain a new empathy for what that must be like for people who have multiple factors hitting them, like black women, right? Or black poor women, right? Even further. And you can kind of take steps and say, wow, they have all of these layers. I only felt one, and I feel oppressed by it. Right? I think
3: stereotypes are going to happen no matter what. Like you said, it's an evolutionary response, right? But it happened can, over a long time. But
4: if we can process it and we can try to fix our systems in place you, that are allowing for this to happen institutionally, then that is progress.
3: You know, right? ba- battle against human evolution and human nature is a very hard one to win. And we've been, been winning, tried. No, no, We have been winning. No, no, Novos Homo Sovieticus. It's been tried in the Soviet Union. Homo they, they, these were the brilliant Soviet scientists that thought that they could reprogram the human and create a, a wonderful new society. You know where that ended up.
4: But we have been winning, right? Uh, if you look at how far we've come, we have been winning, we've been making progress. And the way that we do that is through our institutions. And if we just take it away and say, oh, well, you know, this is just who we are as a species. I'm going to keep my sample exactly the same. I'm going to surround myself with people that are exactly the same. Then, no, things are not going to change. But if you say, you know, like what happened already in this country, no more surrounding yourself with only people that make you comfortable. We are going to integrate societies. Then... It starts to work, and it has been.
3: You know, when the when, when the Soviet Union was at its strongest, it was in the 1980s, a decade before it fell, the decade before it fell. Mm-hmm. We've been winning, maybe I don't know, but I mean, I you, do you not see there's a right wing backlash going on in our political something like we've never seen on a level we've never seen before. It's already. Bubbling. Never seen, really. Not, not this one. <laughs> maybe maybe not while well, I was
4: alive, but
3: maybe thirties, maybe thirties. Father Coughlin, all that. But this, this is something new, guys. I, 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 and I think it's a backlash against this incessant and constant liberalization of all institutions. And, and, the, and I mean, the leftists have been winning since, I, the, since the late 60s. It's been nothing but victory after victory after victory. And I think it's, like you said, the pendulum has swung, and I think it's beginning to swing the other way. And we have to be very careful around that. Do we want to keep on pushing it this way? Because when it swings back, you don't know what's going to happen. So I do wonder about the pendulums. And I do wonder about,
0: you know, okay. when you have somebody on one side of history. And so, the, you know, once the oppressed becomes the oppressor. And sure, this is an ongoing conversation. Which I want to leave all the listeners and all of us going, what? They left it at that? <laughs> in this tension? Yes, because at the end of the night, we're actually still friends. We can have beer, get along, and say cheers. Absolutely. So if you, <laughs> if anybody has any questions or comments, please comment on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, make sure you go on iTunes, give us a little rating, nice rating, and a review. And if you want any of these people's emails here, I may give it away. <laughs> these are some brilliant people. All right, peace, everybody. See ya.